Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Okay, John chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus, at this point, he's buried in the tomb. It's a very sad day for the disciples, and it actually gets worse for them. In chapter 20, verse 1, it says this, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So this woman, Mary Magdalene, goes super early to the tomb while it's still dark, the early hours of Sunday morning. And she notices that the tomb that Jesus is in has a stone rolled away. This is not like any old rolling stone, okay? This is ain't no old Mick Jagger. All right, this is, that was horrible. This is a, a, a multiple ton stone that required seven men to roll it in place by bringing it downhill. This is not the kind of thing that you just move out of the way and move back uphill. Uh, but she comes across this scene, this tomb that Jesus is laid in, now has the stone rolled away and it's, it's, um, it's going to be appeared as empty. Verse 2 says, Then she ran and came to Simon Peter. What does she do when she sees the stone run, rolled away? She runs. She freaks out. She runs to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple were going to the tomb. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that she goes to all the disciples and they all think she's crazy. They're like, they think that she's telling tall tales. She, they're like, ha, good one, okay? The tomb of Jesus is empty and the stone's been rolled away. Now, two of the disciples, they're not mocking, they're interested. Or, or maybe they're just like, okay, well, let's please, let's humor her, you know? So they go to the tomb, and, and I want you to notice the details that John includes about him and Peter going to the tomb. It says there in verse four, so they both ran together And John wants us to know that he, the other disciple, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Okay, if you take notes in your Bible, you can just write petty right there next. I'm just kidding. All right, so Peter and John run to the tomb, and here is the resurrection marathon, and uh, John wins. Okay, now John gets there first, but verse 5 says that he stooped down, and he looks in, and he saw the linen clothes lining there, but he didn't go in. So he looks in and he sees, gets there before Peter and sees that the tomb's empty. Then Simon Peter came following him, and this is so characteristic of Peter. He's kind of like tortoise in the hair, like uh, the hair got there first, but he didn't go in. Here's Peter, he's a little slower, but he gets there, and this is so in his personality. It tells us that he actually went into the tomb. He's like, I'm getting in there, I'm I'm gonna look and I'm gonna investigate. And so Peter goes in and he sees the linen clothes uh, the linen cloth lying there. Notice verse 7, and the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. So we know what's going on here. Okay, we're reading this in retrospect. Um, Jesus, this is amazing. Jesus rises from the dead, and he even takes the time to fold his clothes, okay? Like, so some of you parents are like thinking about your kids right now. You know, they need to be more like Jesus and fold their laundry. All right, anyway. All right, so, so that's what Peter sees. He sees the garments that were wrapped around Jesus, now there, folded with the, head, the headpiece there, uh, folded by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Now he goes, okay, this tomb really is empty. Now, verse 9 tells us that as yet they didn't know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. 
Now I'll say this, they should have. Jesus wasn't pulling any punches. He didn't just allude to it. He spoke clearly about the fact that he was going to rise again. But, man, uh, we're in good company, just so you know, okay? Um, have you ever felt like you're the only one in the group that sometimes doesn't get it and you're a little late to the point, missing it? Well, don't be afraid. You're in good company here. Even the disciples, they missed the most obvious thing that should have been before them. It says this. Here's, so here's where it leaves off. They, all, they, all they see now is this empty tomb. And verse 10 says, Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Isn't that interesting? Um, sound familiar? Everyone's just kind of depressed, now stuck in their homes. Okay, And that's what happened in this time as well. They they. They just kind of go, well, I guess we're just going to go home. It says, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. This woman, Mary, is very interesting. She's the only one that remains there weeping. And she wept as she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And as she looked again, she saw two angels in white sitting, one on the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. I just thought I'd point out to you, this is the only time in Scripture that we see angels sitting. It's as if the work has been accomplished and now they are at rest. Uh, the spiritual war that they've been waging for the centuries has become uh, settled through the resurrection of Jesus and they're sitting there. She looks again. It's always good to take a second look. She looks again and now there's angels. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And that's such an interesting question to ask a woman in a cemetery. <laughs> why are you crying? You know? It's like, I don't know, maybe because of death. You know? um, she said to them, because, and here's actually why she's weeping. Here's her perce- perception. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And then he asked a second question, whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, might have been the weed whacker that that gave it away, I'm not sure, but sorry, Um, but she thought he was the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I don't know what Mary's thinking, like she's going to, what's she going to do with the body of Jesus, like bring it to her house, or like what? She's like, I'll come get it, okay? Um, Anyway, Jesus said to her, notice this, she doesn't know that she's speaking to Jesus, he says, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher, he calls her name. She immediately knows who he is. Maybe it was uh, the, the lack of light out. Remember, it's early in the morning. She couldn't really see well. Um, there's tears in her eyes. I imagine her eyes are just distressed, and she's just hunched over, not getting a good look at him. Uh, he's also in a new form, in a resurrected body. And it's when she, but notice this. It's when he calls her name. Faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. When, she calls, when he calls her name, she knows it's Jesus. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. So she just gives him one of those death grip hugs, like, and she is just clinching tight to have him. But he says, don't, don't cling to me. I'm going to ascend to my father. Go and tell my brethren. Uh, Matthew's version, uh, Jesus says, and Peter, let Peter know. Tell Peter especially. All right, that I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. This is an unprecedented, unprecedented testimony for Jesus to be commissioning here because in that culture, the witness of a woman wasn't even admissible or received in court. And notice this, the first evangelist that Jesus sends out is a woman. 
uh, be careful that we don't, uh, that you don't and we don't let, uh, we must be careful of this. We don't let the kind of people that earth puts down, uh, you know, we don't do the same things. Um, heaven often lifts up the people that we're in our culture tending to put down, and this is just amazing. Here's Jesus validating this woman's testimony. Verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews... It says, Jesus came and stood, notice this phrase, in the midst, and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's, of course, going to be through the preaching of the gospel. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. What a horrible time to go use the restroom, you know? It's like at the best part of the movie, you know? And Thomas wasn't there. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. He just showed up in the midst of us, and it was epic. He like breathed on us, and we received the Holy Spirit. And Thomas goes, unless I see, notice his response, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. I, I don't believe that. Yeah, right. And after eight days, eight days later, his disciples were again inside. I, I imagine in my mind they're just hanging out there like for eight days waiting for him to come back and show up again. And Thomas this time is with them. Good job, Thomas. Thomas is, is holding it now. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood again, here's, here's this phrase, in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said, notice this proclamation and acclamation, my Lord and my God. Jesus is called God, and he is God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Tom, uh, this chapter closes with this statement, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. Now this is the word of God. This is what scripture gives to us as this account in the Gospel of John of, of what those first followers of Jesus encountered three days after the death of Jesus. I wanna bring this to some application now and if I could, I just wanna pray one more time as we think about what this means for us presently. Uh, Jesus, thank you uh, for this, again, this moment we have here to open your word and to think about what you've accomplished we get to remember these significant events that happened in history. We pray now that you would download to us an understanding of how they apply to us presently, of what they mean to us currently. So Holy Spirit, I pray now that as I seek to proclaim what you have put on my heart for those watching, I pray that you would empower me with your spirit, you would soften our hearts to receive what you wanna say. I ask that you would speak through me and speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well. 
In light of this chapter that we just read and this narrative that we just saw unfold, I want to preach a sermon to you on this special Easter Sunday that I've entitled simply, Jesus in the Myths. Jesus in the Myths. You know, what we're after here on Resurrection Sunday is not just thinking about an event that happened 2,000 years ago, but like Good Friday that we studied this past Friday with the crucifixion, what we're beginning to ask is this really helpful question, what does it mean? How does the resurrection of Jesus actually apply to my life, to this moment right now? I mean, think about the moment we're in right now, an an unprecedented never before experienced moment for any of our lifetimes, walking through what has been one of the most unique experiences. This crisis, this situation we're in. I mean, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to say, or how does that actually apply to what we're going through? And I think we get a glimpse of that here in this chapter that we just read, and it's by this simple acknowledgement, the fact that through the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus, notice this phrase again, is in the midst. That's what we see here in this passage. That's what the resurrection means. Listen closely. The resurrection, Easter Sunday, this is what it's all about. It means this, that Jesus is not just a historic figure of the past, but he is a real, relevant, living person who is in the present and who is present with you. He's alive and he is in the midst. That's what we see the disciples wrestling to come to grips with. Uh, They knew the Jesus who was alive and died, but this is not just that Jesus. This is a Jesus who has risen again victoriously over the grave and is now with them. His presence is with them. And if there's one thing we see about Jesus in the midst of his disciples, if there's one thing we see about his presence, it's that it, listen, it's that it changes things. When Jesus shows up in the midst, when Jesus comes into the room, when Jesus is standing there next to Mary, he brings transformation. Jesus changes lives. This is one of the main reasons why I would say that I believe in the resurrection. Uh, Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I could give you a library of historical reasons. I could give you a library and a, a long list of philosophical reasons. But the ultimate reason, how do I know that Jesus has risen from the grave? How do I know that Jesus is alive? He's changed my life. The real, risen, relevant Jesus has changed my life. He's probably changed your life. I wonder, has he changed your life? That's how we know, man. I've seen him change people's lives. Uh, The kind of change that has occurred throughout the history of humanity for the past 2,000 years could have only happened through a resurrected man who's still alive. This movement of Christianity would have died out long ago. The followers wouldn't have given their lives for what they see here in seeing him. And the faith would have eventually dwindled out as a big scam. It's as if there was a real resurrected Jesus carrying the church forward. It's as if Jesus is alive. Of course, he is. And that's the implication here, that Jesus is in the midst. And when he's in the midst, things change. Lives are changed. Now, maybe you're hearing me say this and you're going, well, that, that's, that sounds really nice, you know, Jesus working, changing lives. It's nice for you people. You guys are at this great place in your life where you're just jazzed on Jesus and everything's great. Um, 
maybe you look at your own life and you go, you know, I, I, I'm not a candidate for that. I could never be a candidate for Jesus changing my life because I'm at too low of a point. I'm too far from him. And can I tell you another thing that we just saw in that story? Not only does Jesus work at our lowest points, but it's almost like he does his best work when we're at our lowest points. Jesus specializes in our lowest moments. It's at our lowest moments that he does his best work. We see that there. We see Jesus showing up here. That's my story, man. Um, I came to faith in Jesus because he met me at my low. Sometimes that's the best place that you can be. You hit rock bottom and you discover who the rock at the bottom is. You discover who life is meant to be lived for and in. And that's what we see Jesus doing here in John 20. Showing up, listen, in the lows of sorrow and bitterness. In the lows of depression Jesus shows up in the midst of fear and anxiety. Jesus shows up and he brings change in the midst of skepticism and unbelief. I don't know what your low is today. I don't know what portion and part of your life you've disqualified the work of God from happening, but if there's one thing this story tells us, God specializes in those moments. We see that here in just three cases, three people that we see Jesus in the midst with. And I want you to see each of these. The first we saw was this woman named Mary. In the life of Mary Magdalene, we see this. We see Jesus in the midst of bitter sorrow restoring joy. That's the first thing we saw. We saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in the midst of bitter sorrow restoring joy. It's a woman that we meet there in the first verse. It tells us her name, Mary Magdalene. Now, we don't know very much about this woman. We know just here uh, where she's from, which is Magdala. Um, And from what many people have put together, um, it's likely that this woman has experienced an incredible life transformation by Jesus. Jesus has changed her life. In fact, the one thing we do know about here is pretty insightful, and it comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 2, and it says that Mary called Magdalene, Uh, was one of the women that Jesus healed, and out of her, listen to this, came seven demons. It's like, what's your testimony? (laughs) I had seven demons, okay? Now, I don't, listen, I don't know what that's like to walk around with seven demons hanging out inside of you. I would just imagine it was probably a rough life. I imagine she wasn't at her highest point, and Jesus came into her life and changed her life Uh, Some people have associated with her. It's possible that she is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She comes from Magdala, which is a place where prostitution was rampant. It's possible that this is a woman who was cut in the bounds of sin, caught in the bounds of sin in every way, and Jesus has come and he has set her free. She's no longer a slave. She is now a a daughter of the living God, and her joy is now her Lord. But notice what we see here. She's not at that high point anymore. And such is life, isn't it? You go from low to high, back to low. And here she is, probably at, I'm sure she's feeling lower than she's felt even before. Her joy is now lost, and she's filled with sorrow. Her joy has been replaced with what we'll call bitter sorrow. Why is that? Because in her mind, listen to this, not only has Jesus been crucified, her Savior, but to make matters worse, now his body's missing, right? I mean, we have to put ourselves in their situation. Now, we know, obviously, we know what's going on here. We're reading this in retrospect. Uh, We know that when Mary and the disciples come to the empty tomb and they see 
an empty tomb, right? We know that heaven sees a resurrected Savior, and we're able to see that. But in real time, I mean, imagine what they're feeling. Imagine what they're feeling as, man, it's like adding heartache to heartbreak. Adding insult to injury is the expression. Not only has Jesus been crucified, but now his body has been taken. Like, that's, that's unimaginable. And this is where she finds herself, at the lowest point of bitter sorrow, unable to see Jesus in this moment. And can I just say, here is where Jesus shows up. He, he doesn't wait for her to clean her act up, to wipe her tears away, get happy again, just put, put away the emotion. Jesus shows up right in the midst of her bitter sorrow, even though she can't see him. You know, the Bible says in the, the Psalm, Psalm 34, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's so close, closer than you could ever hope him to be. Even if you don't see him, he's there with her. You know, and that's often what the wrestle with bitter sorrow and disappointment in life can feel like. Uh, It's these two issues that Mary is facing with her sight. Number one, she's unable to see her circumstance through the lens of heaven. And so what is really, it's interesting, right? The thought that the tomb, the empty tomb would be a tragedy to us is ridiculous. The empty tomb is a triumph, but for her perspective, it's a tragedy. She's weeping from her perception. And she's also not able to see the presence of the Lord with her. Now, did that change what was true? Of course not. It didn't change the fact that the empty tomb was the greatest thing that we could ever celebrate. It didn't change the fact that Jesus was right there even though she didn't know it. In fact, she thought he was the gardener. Jesus speaks to her and there she is in her moment of weeping, of sorrow, of pain and Jesus shows up in the midst of that and what does he do to affirm his presence to her? He calls her name. He just says, Mary. That was all it took for her to know who he was. I wonder if you need Jesus to show up in the midst of your better sorrow and I wonder if you need to hear him Call your name. And by calling her name, here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, he's saying, I see you, I know you, I'm with you, I love you, I'm here. I mean, this is what it means to encounter the living God. You're known by him. And you see whatever your sorrow is, as painful as it is, joy can be restored when you know that he's with you. And that's the greatest thing we could ever hope for. In fact, Jesus didn't promise us that in life we're not gonna have any sorrows. In fact, life is filled with sorrows. The very life of Jesus was filled with bitter sorrow. Jesus in scripture is called the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. In this world you will have tribulation. But what Jesus wants us to know in our sorrow, if we'll invite him into our midst, is we have someone who in in him has overcome the world. And in him, there's joy. David says in the Psalms, it's in his presence that there's fullness of joy. And that's what we see happen in the life of Mary. We see Jesus, as I said, in the midst of her bitter sorrow, restoring her joy. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy came in the morning through the presence of Jesus in her midst. The second thing that we see here in this story is we see Jesus in the midst, notice this next one, of crippling fear bringing peace. Uh, Mary is there in the garden, and it says that the, the same day at evening, his disciples are gathered, and they are in a, a room, and they have shut the doors 
in fear of the Jews. They're, they're hiding out for their very lives. They're terrified, okay? Um, talk about a low point. I mean, they're going from, we'll die with you, Lord. I mean, think of all the sermons. I mean, how many sermons has Jesus preached to these guys? Like, listen, you, you, by the way, if, if you think that's enough, just like being around the Bible to like actually give you what you need, like this is a great example that there's, a, there's heart issues too. And here, these are disciples that heard how many sermons, the ones that we haven't even read about, where Jesus is constantly saying things like, hey, I'm leaving. Don't be afraid. Okay, don't be afraid. Guys, just want to double check. Don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid, okay? All right, I'm leaving you my peace. It's going to get hard, but don't be afraid. And here they are, terrified. In a room, it tells us with the door shut, and actually the word literally means locked securely. Uh, so these guys are the ones that Jesus has come Jesus always invests his kingdom and his mission into the most unlikely candidates, right? These are the guys that are going to change the world, okay? And they are, cri are crippled by fear. What a great, by the way, display of how fear can control us. It locks us in, doesn't it? Fear gives off the illusion that you're locking things out, but what fear really does is it traps you in. And it controls your decisions. There's two things that in life that will make you do crazy things. It's love and it's fear. Fear will make you act crazy at the grocery store. Okay? Fear will make you react. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. It'll make you react, whether for, the, for better or for worse, in ways that you normally wouldn't in a calm, collected state. But here's the disciples. They are in the midst of crippling fear in fear of the Jews, in fear of their own lives. They were the followers of Jesus. Are they next? And what does Jesus do? It tells us there in verse, um, it's verse 19 that Jesus stands in their midst. There he is. He's present in the fear. And let me say this. This is the way that Jesus remedies their fear. How is it that Jesus remedies their fear? He shows up in their midst, and he doesn't, I think this is important to point out, when Jesus shows up here in the, in the midst of their fear, um, he, he doesn't remove their fear, he redirects their fear. And this is what he always did with them. Remember the story where they're in the boat with Jesus and they're freaking out. Oh my gosh, they're terrified of the storm. They're afraid of the waves. Jesus is then present. They see his presence. He calms the wind and the waves. And now they move from fearing the storm to fearing him. Well, what they recognize, and we see it here as well, they recognize that, listen, there's no, nothing or no one to fear except God himself. Jesus himself, his presence it redirected their fear. They said, who am I to be afraid of these things before me when Jesus was here? I mean, this is amazing how this changed the dynamic. Like in their understanding, Jesus not being there, like if there is no God, if Jesus never rose from the dead, can I say like, you should be afraid, right? There's scary things in this life, right? We've been walking through one of the most terrifying experiences as a nation, like the most terrifying prolonged experiences I think we've ever walked through. And there's some real legitimate fear there. If there's not God, there's, there's reason to be afraid. But listen, because Jesus is alive, he's the one worth fearing. Because Jesus is alive, we don't need to fear anything. Jesus shows up, he redirects their fear. No, we're in awe and wonder of you. Jesus taught them this. This is what Jesus said to them in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, do not fear. 
Those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Right now they're in the upper room and they are fearing those that could kill their body. Jesus goes, no, don't fear those who cannot kill the body or who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But notice the strong language. But fear him, God, who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The idea here, the language here, is speaking about the fact that, man, they might be able to overpower you physically, but it's God who holds eternity. There's no one to be in awe and wonder of like God. And when you're in awe and wonder of God, when you fear the Lord, you won't fear coronavirus. When you fear the Lord, you won't fear cancer. When you fear the Lord, you won't fear man. Fear God, not death. Fear God, not disease. Fear God, not man. That's the idea. His very presence redirects their fear, and they move now, notice this, through his presence, they move from fear to peace. Jesus is in the midst of crippling fear, and he brings peace in the storm. He brings peace to their fear. And how does he do that? I love this. He says, peace be with you. When he said this, he had showed them his hands and his side, and notice this, they, they were now glad. Now they're stoked. Yes! Jesus is alive. And it tells us this, that he said to them again, peace to you. He speaks peace over them through his presence. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said these, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of many, they are retained. And what we have here is the beginning of a cataclysmic shift in the life of the disciples who now will go on to fear God to the point of death who now will go on to not hide, but because God is with them, their mindset is no one can be against us. God is for me. He brings peace to their lives, and I want you to notice this, by his spirit. Receive my spirit. I wanna remind you of a promise, Christian, that we've received through Jesus. It's 2 Timothy 1.7, that God has not given us. He has not breathed upon us a spirit of paralyzing, crippling fear, but he has given us his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit that he wants to even breathe on you afresh this morning is a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. What is the spirit that you've been operating in? Are you still stuck at your low and crippling fear? Maybe you need to see Jesus in the midst of your crippling fear. You need to receive his Holy Spirit. You need to be breathed upon afresh by him to walk now not in the spirit of fear, but in the spirit of the living God with power, love, and a sound mind. We see Jesus, number one, in the midst of bitter sorrow, bringing restoring joy. We see Jesus showing up in the midst of crippling fear, bringing peace. And I close here with the third point where we see Jesus in the midst. Notice this one of jaded skepticism. We see him growing faith. Jesus shows up in the midst of jaded skepticism. Who's the jaded skeptic? It's our guy, Thomas. He's called the twin. Now, who is his twin brother? I don't know. I feel like I am sometimes. I'm a lot like Thomas. Thomas is the one disciple that's not there in the upper room, in that, in that, in the, in that room when Jesus shows up, and I wonder how frustrated he is, disappointed he is. So he's already deeply saddened, and it's interesting how sadness can manifest in different ways. You know what I mean? Like for, some, for Mary, it's sorrow. For the disciples, it's freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? It's anxiety. But I imagine for Thomas, it's like hardness. You know what I mean? He becomes a hardened shell. 
and he's experienced so much disappointment that he's like, I could never hope again. Don't, don't tell me that. Don't lead me into some false hope. I, I don't believe it. Don't you dare say to me that you saw Jesus. No. He's hardened, and he's a bit jaded, right? It's like he's not going to believe the report. He's a skeptic. And because of all that he's experienced, I, 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 can, re- I can resonate with this. Um, Jesus, I want to say this. Jesus saved my faith. Jesus continues to save my faith. I'm a pretty, I can, I can be a pretty jaded person. I don't know about you. You ever felt like you had the, your faith in Jesus beat out of you because of other Christians, <laughs> because of religiosity? I don't know what your reason is. There's all sorts of reasons why we become jaded, why we become skeptical. But if there's one thing that Thomas reminds us of here, it's that Jesus, listen, when we are in that place, Maybe right now you're watching and you're like, I don't know what I believe about all this. I've experienced so much heartache and heartbreak and I've seen so many hypocritical Christians. And maybe, you're, maybe you can relate to Thomas in this way. You're like, I feel like I was always the one Christian in the room that didn't see Jesus. Your faith is now jaded. Jesus is with you. He doesn't stand on some other side of this cliff and say, you better muster that faith and get over here. I'll be waiting for you to be a believer. This is Jesus. Here's Thomas, a jaded skeptic, and what does Jesus do? He shows up. He's in the midst of skepticism. And what he always wants to do, let me say this, when we see Jesus in the midst of skepticism, I've had to go through this. I don't know if you've been here before. I've been to the point where I'm like, I'm throwing in the towel, I'm like over this, and all I had left was Jesus. It's the best person to turn to in that moment. And what Jesus does is he restores faith. He grows faith. That's what we see him do with Thomas. He grows his faith. Let me say this, in the way that Jesus knows he, he, he can. Uh, let me explain it this way. Uh, it's the book of Hebrews that say, um, that's a good verse too, but the book of Hebrews 12 says, look unto Jesus. It says this about Jesus. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. So, so Jesus is the one who's architecting and, and growing and developing our faith. Uh, at every season of life, God is always active doing something with your and my faith, wherever it's at. And here we see, even when it's at a skeptic, jaded place, he's there. He's working, and I love this that we see here with Thomas. It's this point that's, that, that, that recognizes that Jesus knows. Jesus always knows what our faith needs. He's the author of it. Jesus, know, Jesus knew that, you know what Thomas needed? Thomas needed sight. Jesus knows when you're, like, I've, I don't know about you, I've had times where I'm like, Jesus, I need to see something. Like, because I've seen, I, I've seen a lot of other things, and I'm so thankful for the times where Jesus opened my eyes to see something that strengthened my faith through sight, right? And he does that with Thomas. He shows him. And I think that's so awesome. I love that when Thomas is needing evidence, Jesus does, doesn't rebuke that. No, just believe. Jesus gives him evidence. He's like, here, look. Like, did you know that's the Christian faith? That's Jesus? You go, I just need evidence. He's like, okay, come, look. Come study, come examine, and the evidence, you'll see, it demands the verdict. Jesus is alive. Jesus knows what our faith needs. He, he knows that sometimes our faith needs seeing. And let me say this. He also knows when our faith needs stretching. He also knows that there's times where seeing something is not going to actually help our faith. And you're praying right now, I just need to see something, I need to see something. And what that's going to do is just put you in this cycle of, of constantly needing another thing to see. 
And what you find is this illusion that you're chasing. And we see that with Mary. We see that with the disciples. Guys, the disciples saw a lot of things. If anyone had a reason to believe Jesus, it was the people that watched him do the things that he did. The issue at the end of the day is not your sight, it's your heart. Are you trusting Jesus on your terms or his terms? He's the author of your faith. Listen, if he's stretching your faith, let him. Jesus says to Thomas, man, blessed are you because you saw and you believe, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. They trust. Can I say, this is a normal part of everyday life, by the way. This is not just exclusive to Christianity. We, faith is inevitable. You're using faith right now by trusting in your cognitive abilities about where you are, who you are. Everything requires faith. You get into a seat, you have faith. You exercise faith that it'll hold your weight. There's times in life where I'm, I'm not as sure about that. But you, you put your, your key in the ignition, you don't even think about it. You just, because of just natural flows of life, faith is expressed in everyday life, and that's what Jesus is seeking to produce in himself. It's Hebrews that says that it's impossible to please God without faith. It's what he wants to grow. And so again, let me close with this thought. Here's what we see. We see Jesus in the midst. What is your current situation? What is your low? And where does Jesus want to restore some things? Where does Jesus want to produce some things and grow some things? Can I make a promise to you? This same Jesus wants to change your life. This same Jesus is still alive. This same Jesus is still in the midst of whatever it is you're walking through. And this same Jesus, if you open up your heart and your life to him, you will never be the same. In fact, that's what John goes on to close with. He says in John, in John 20, verse 30, he says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. This is not just here for the disciples. This is for you. It's for me. Jesus did so many other things, but John says the reason why these things are here is so that you and I would believe and that we would have life in Jesus. We would invite the risen Jesus into our life to change our life, to come in and take us. This is what's amazing. He takes us as we are. He receives us at the low point where we're at, and he doesn't say, clean up your act, get it all together, and then we can work some things out, but no, Jesus fixes what's broken. Jesus restores what's broken. Jesus cleanses what's unclean. Stop trying to bring yourself to some height that you can never reach. You see, the gospel is this. The gospel is that Jesus saw us where we were at our low. God made you, God made me at such a high point. We were created in his image for a great purpose, for his glory, to enjoy him and know him forever, to use our lives for the good of one another and and the glory of God, to make this world a beautiful place. But there's this thing called sin that entered the world and brought us to a really low point. How low? So low that we have fallen away from our relationship from God. So low that there's no amount of human effort and righteousness and good behavior that could get you back to that high point. And this is the gospel. This is the Christian message. This is Jesus. God, 
when he saw man at his low, God left his high place and came into the midst of man's low. God became a man in the person of Jesus and he moved into the neighborhood. He walked with us. He worked with us. He cried with us. He laughed with us. He entered into the low story of human history. And he did that because ultimately he would go to an even lower point where he would hang on a cross and upon that cross he would become all the low things that we are. He would take upon himself as a sinless sacrifice as a perfect, holy, spotless lamb, he would hang on a cross willingly out of his love for you to take upon himself all the things about you that are keeping you from him. And he hung there and he bled and he bore that sin. The son of God, Philippians 2 says, who is in the form of God, who is on the throne of God, he humbled himself, he came low to the point of a cross with you in mind with your sin on his back. Now, he would just be a good man for doing that, right? Being a sacrificial scapegoat for us, going to the cross, giving his life for us, but this is what makes Jesus God. Jesus didn't just come down to our low point. Jesus went as low as the grave to bring us up again. So Jesus goes into the grave as low as you could go and he defeats death. He rises victoriously so that we who are dead could be risen with him. We who are low could be brought high. We who are stuck in the mire of our sin could be saved and redeemed by him. That's what Easter's about. It's about a savior who has come low to take upon himself our sin, to bring us high again, to reunite us to God. And I wonder for you, if Jesus has ever been in your midst, John says these things are written that we might believe in him and have life in his name. Do you know what this life is like? What kind of life? It's abundant life. It's the life you were created to live. It's eternal life. It's spending eternity with God forever. Well, how do I lay hold of this? How do I experience Jesus' changing, transforming work in my life? John says, you believe. It's not these things you have to do. It's trusting in what Jesus did. Trusting in Jesus, believing what's called the gospel, that good news I just shared with you that Jesus took your sin and has risen victoriously. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, and if we believe in our heart here on Easter Sunday that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says this, you will be saved. You will be, not might be or could be, you will be by trusting in him. And that's what I wanna lead you to do today. Just from wherever you are, the quiet of your home or your bedroom, wherever you find yourself, I want to lead you in a prayer, a prayer that leads you to believe on Jesus, to experience his work in your life, to be saved through your faith in him. And it goes like this. It says, Lord Jesus, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever dared admit, but through you I am more loved and accepted than I ever could imagine. Thank you for paying my debt on the cross, taking what I deserved in order to offer me complete forgiveness. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sins and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. Is that the prayer you need to pray today as you turn to Jesus? If so, it's right there on the screen. I'm just going to read it one more time. Would you pray this with me? Just pray this. Say, Lord Jesus, 
I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever dared admit. I admit that. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I could ever imagine. I thank you. Thank him for paying your debt, paying my debt on the cross, taking what I deserved in order to offer me complete forgiveness, knowing here on Easter Sunday that you have been raised from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. Now, I believe if you prayed that with sincerity today, if you cried out to God with a genuine heart, can I tell you, God, God is in your midst. He's been in your midst. He has heard you. And you have, through your trust in him, the hope of eternal life through repenting and turning to him. So we want to just rejoice with you, whoever you are. If you prayed that today, the Bible says that when one sinner turns and repents, that all of heaven throws a party and rejoices over the life that's been found. So we rejoice over you today. Listen, if you're wanting to connect with someone and in light of this, you feel like you want more counsel and prayer, we really would want to know who you are and what God's done in your life. You can send us an email, info at soullesschurch.com. You can DM us, message us, however you gotta get to us. Use every opportunity to let us know who you are and what God's done in your life. Ultimately, you're letting us know what the resurrected Jesus has done in your life because he is in our midst. He is our resurrected king. Let's worship him as we close out declaring who he is. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solacechurch.com.